Well, as we continue standing in reverence and respect for God's Word, I will be reading this morning from the Matthew According to Gospel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 21 down through verse 35. And there, Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I will forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment was to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. And so his fellow servant fell down and, and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debts. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! <laughs> I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, good morning to all of you. If you would turn with me once again in God's Word, this time to Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we plan to round out this chapter. So we've already made it through four chapters, or will have. Uh, so making, making some progress here. Uh, Ephesians 4, we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 32. The beauty of a forgiving personality the beauty of a forgiving personality. Or another way that I thought of this morning as I was reviewing, as we could call it this, from forgiven to forgiving. From forgiven to forgiving. The Puritan John Bunyan, who, you know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, you might be surprised if you haven't read some of his other works that he wrestled with believing that God could save him, could forgive him. He wrestled with that is because of his sin. He thought about how great his sin was. And he, he, he's like, Lord, could you really forgive me because of how great my sin is? And he even wrestled with that after he was saved. And he tells of, of one instance, one of those sat satanic attacks that where God brought him much, as he said, sweetness and comfort. 
And the way God did that is he helped him to understand the character of God's love. So taking the focus off of himself and thinking about God and his love. And so he said that it was as if God had said to him, I loved you while you were committing this sin. I loved you before. I love you still. And I will love you forever. And then as he was talking about that, he remembered what the psalmist said about God in Psalm 130, verse 4, which is at the top of your bulletins. There is forgiveness with you, God, that you, God, may be feared. What he recognized from that is that because God had forgiven him, that forgiveness had worked in him to moving to fear God. And by fearing God, he said that it, it is a love toward God. It is reverence, yes, but it is also love for God. And, and, he's, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what he, he said about God's uh, the fear of God. But <clears throat> what he's trying to get at is when God forgives someone... It transforms them so that they begin to take on God's character of love and forgiveness. Things that we're going to be talking about today. He later expanded in another book on this idea of the fear of God. And he said that it produces in the believer true tenderness of heart. True godly softness of spirit. So, on, at first... the God's forgiving us moves us to fear Him, and that fear of God is not... Remember when we talked about the fear of God, it was, it's not the terror fear that the unbeliever has and should have before God, where he's afraid of God because he's under the judgment of God. It is that worship fear. That worship fear is love, and as he says here, it is true tenderness of heart, true godly softness of spirit. So, it transforms... Our character first toward God, but that same tender-heartedness that he talks about now is going to be manifested toward the people around us. So it'll transform our character toward God and then toward others. And so I ask you, has God forgiven you? And if you say yes, he has forgiven me, I, I've trusted in Jesus Christ then I ask you, do you now have that tenderness, that softness of spirit that Bunyan talked about toward God? Do you have that toward God? And if you say yes, or at least I'm making progress in that direction, I ask you, are you now known for being a forgiving person? Are you now known for someone who is kind and tender-hearted? Have you gone from forgiven to forgiving? And as Kevin read Matthew 18, that, that parable at the end of the chapter, what we need to understand about that is God forgave that first servant in the, in the parable. The king forgave, and that's God forgiving. He's representing God as forgiving us. So the king uh, forgave him, but then he turned around and refused to forgive one of his fellow servants or fellow slaves. 
And so then the king, representing God in righteous anger, put him in prison. That was severe discipline. That's, that's not, sometimes we think of it, and I know a lot of times I, I thought of that as, you know, that's, you know, he's final condemnation, permanent. That's not what it's talking about. It's actually talking about severe discipline. That's, that's the theme of Matthew 18, right? And so this is someone who has been forgiven, but they, they refuse to forgive. And there will be serious, severe chastisement if that is the way they continue. <clears throat> and so that's what's going on there. And that is why that's such a, a beautiful picture of what we have here uh, in the passage before us. See, so that, that's where Paul is now taking us as he rounds out the, our study of, of chapter 4. And so he tells us here to put off the fruits of sinful anger and replace them with the fruits of forgiveness. Put off the fruits of sinful anger and replace them with the fruits of forgiveness. What Paul is doing here is he's, he's displaying for us a contrast between two dominating mindsets. Okay, So you've got uh, the one mindset in verse 31. <clears throat> what he shows there is that this is what your character will be like when anger rots. And it rots your, your soul and your relationships. And in verse 32, there's the contrast there. This is what your character is like when forgiveness blooms. And so I ask us, has God's forgiveness made you into a forgiving person? Or do you rot in anger? So Paul wraps up his call uh, in the section we've been working in, uh, working on for that that called for us to walk in holiness. Remember, we talked about uh, walk in a, in a manner worthy of your calling. That's the the general umbrella. And then under that, there's there's different ways that he tells us to walk. First, there was that walk in unity, and then we came now to a walk in holiness. We're to walk in holiness, and so what he what he does in that is he gives us those five put off put on pairs from verses 25 through 32 and this is the fifth one fifth pair of those put off put on commands he returns here also we're going to see to the subject of anger and what he wants to do is to show us that what results from not dealing with and and preventing our sinful anger or when we allow righteous anger to fester, because you remember we said, he said that Paul taught us back there earlier in the chapter that we, even when we are righteously angry, we must deal with it quickly. He said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't leave the door open to the devil. And so this is what, verse 31 is what happens when you don't, deal with your sinful anger, or you don't carry your righteous anger to the biblical solution that we talked about. So, we're going to look at these two, these contrasting, uh, dominating mindsets. First, put away the fruits of sinful anger. Put away the fruits of sinful anger. Look with me at verse 31. So, Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all 
malice. We must deal decisively with sinful anger. Like an old filthy garment, we need to take it off, put it off. This is that put off, put on dynamic that we've been talking about for weeks. If you don't, if you don't put that off, the stench of anger's rotting will pollute you and your relationships. And the six vices that he lists for us here in in verse 31, they portray sinful attitudes that damage relationships. And we're going to walk through that. They portray sinful attitudes that damage relationships. So let's consider the first of those six fruits of sinful anger. First, bitterness. The word for bitter, it described things that were sharp or piercing or pungent. When it was used of foods, it described a bitter taste. And that's why we we use the term bitterness. In the New Testament, it was used for bitterness or resentment. John Fry said that bitterness is the long-term slow accrual of anger. And so when you don't deal with your anger, and you see this is why it's important to notice what Paul told us to do in dealing with anger, is that you, you must deal with it quickly, even if it's righteous anger. You have to deal with it quickly. Because even if you let that fester, then what happens is it turns into bitterness, that the, the anger just accrues over time, and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and turns into bitterness. Paul said here to put away all bitterness. And by that, he means every kind of bitterness. So your bitterness might not look like somebody else's. You may say, oh, they're bitter. I'm not like that. But maybe you are bitter just in a different way. It works its way out in your life a little differently. Put away every kind of bitterness. Commentator John Eady spells this out well. He says, That bitterness is that fretted and irritable state of mind that keeps a man in perpetual animosity, that inclines him to harsh and uncharitable opinions of men and things. It makes him sour, crabbed, or we would say today crabby, and repulsive in his general demeanor. It brings a scowl over his face and infuses venom into the words of his tongue. You see, the bitter person prefers to remain bitter over reconciling, over restoring relationships. And I know it sounds weird, and when you realize that you've been bitter or angry or other things like that, you, you know, you, you, you realize, oh, yeah, I find that I don't. I want to keep on with that. I don't want to let it go. And, and it kind of puzzles us a little bit. You know, so why do I want something bad like that? And, and look what it does to my life. But yet I can't seem to let go of bitterness. That's because, on, at least for some, we have this thinking that you know, if I forgive them, then I let that offender off much too painlessly. Remember, we talked about that, the punitive anger. How that's, you know, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. You you need to hurt because you hurt me. And 
And that is what keeps a person bitter oftentimes. And so their bitterness, it, it might shoot stinging words like arrows at, at someone. Or their bitterness singes those around them as their wrath smolders like a fiery cauldron. And in a, you may have been like that. I know I've been like that at times. That's probably more, if I'm going to be bitter, that's what that's going to be like. Is it just burns inside and and it, and it smolders and you know and I might not I don't explode typically, but you get close to me you get burned, and and that's the point right, uh, sadly. <clears throat> I mentioned in our study of Ephesians four twenty six that we must deal with anger quickly we must get it resolved so it doesn't rot into bitterness, and that's true as I said already of righteous anger. Even with it, we need to deal with it quickly. We are not to let it fester because even when you are... And you can think of times when you were right to be angry about sin. And if you let it linger, it festers, doesn't it? It will start pulling you down if you don't deal with it. And take it to the, to the, the biblical solution, one of those biblical solutions that you should pursue. It can degenerate into sinful anger. And, and then realize this, that unresolved anger of any kind, when it goes on, what happens is like it drops seeds of bitterness on your flesh. And if you persist and don't deal with that anger, those seeds will take root and they will grow. They'll sprout, they'll grow, and they will make us bitter. Some of you are familiar with uh, probably... Probably the most uh, well-known passage about bitterness, Hebrews twelve fifteen, <clears throat> And what he's talking about there is not just that, that bitterness in a person's heart, but it starts there. It starts with what we're talking about here, that the bitterness takes root in that person's heart. But what can happen is it can then send a root of bitterness out into the assembly. Okay? And, and that does happen. And he's warning against that. And the way that happens is they complain. The person who has bitterness growing in their heart, they begin to complain. And when they complain, they're trying to find someone else, some other fertile ground for that bitterness to take root in. And so then it will root its way through the assembly. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is warning us against. That root will spread bitterness and resentment throughout the flock. So when someone complains to you, be on the alert. The the writer of the Hebrews warns, he says, you know, what will happen is by it many will be defiled. And when someone comes and, and complains to you, you should say, have you taken that up with the person you're complaining about? Go back to Matthew 18, the earlier part of the chapter. You need to go deal with them. And there may be a, a place where you take it to the elders. Maybe that's the right thing. But if somebody complains to you and you're not one of the elders, then you need to say, okay, did you take it to the person that you're complaining about? Or have you taken it to the elders? Um, you have to, you see, you might have a concern and a concern is not bad if you deal with it biblically. 
And that's why Matthew 18 and other passages tell us about dealing with it biblically. Okay. Um, and so if that happens and you're on the alert for it, you ask them, okay, I understand you have a concern. Are you dealing with it biblically? And maybe it does need to be dealt with. But in the right way with the right parties involved. Otherwise, it becomes bitterness and it spreads through the flock. Okay, so that's the first one, bitterness. Let's take up the next two. The next two fruits of sinful anger, wrath and anger. Paul uses these terms together to represent all sorts of sinful anger. And the context here lets us know, even though he uses the same word here, the they have the same root as the word we saw earlier in verse 26. The context there was clear that he's talking first about righteous anger, be angry, and unrighteous anger, and do not sin, right? Context here, because he has it with all of these other vices, that things that sometimes can be good, wrath and anger, God's wrath is good, it's a right thing, it's a just thing. God's anger is just, And our anger sometimes can be just. But here, it's sinful anger because he's put it together with all these other vices. So, wrath first. The Greek word thumos. It describes a more temporary, passionate anger. You see, so it's going to be more temporary than orge that we're going to talk about here in a sec. So, he puts these together. Uh, Wrath is a more temporary, passionate anger. It's, It's the kind of... When it's sinful, which would be us, not God, it's a, this explosive idea. So when he puts these two together, they can be synonyms sometimes, but when he puts them together, he means for us to understand this range of sinful anger. So orgate, the, the word anger uh, in our English, when it's used with wrath, thumos, it describes an abiding hostility, an abiding Hostility. So you see how the one is explosive and it's temporary, and the other is this abiding. You know, it's that, that fiery cauldron I was talking about, where it's just you know, you know, seething and burning and stewing. You know, <clears throat> what Paul is saying is to put off all sinful anger. That on the one hand that boils up, that that abiding state of sinful anger on the other hand, and everything in between. Okay. So all forms of sinful anger, again, that word all applies to this. So all forms of sinful anger, sinful wrath, need to be put away. The fourth fruit of sinful anger is clamor. It just, the basic idea of the word is someone uh, crying, screaming, shouting. And here it's talking about shouting in anger. You know, I mean, we've all, probably all been there at some point. Either we've done it or received it, right? Where we get angry and, and our voice goes up and, and we're shouting. And it's also talking about complaining, where where you're you're venting, you're you're complaining about something, and it's coming out like that. And that ties back in with bitterness, right? Because as that that clamor is happening and you're 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 complaining, and then over time that'll turn into bitterness, and then that root take it takes root and all. The fifth fruit, slander. It can be used for blaspheming God or slandering people. Here, because he's talking about one another, he's talking about people. And so it is speaking against others to harm them. That's the idea behind it. You're trying to harm them. Now, saying negative things about others isn't always sinful if it's in the right context and for the right purpose. 
And again, it's kind of like with a concern, don't let it become a complaint if you deal with it rightly. Same with if you, there, there's a time to say negative things about others, but it must be to correct or protect, never to punish. Remember, we talked about that punitive anger. It should not, that's not for us. Ours, our anger always has to be corrective. So it should be to protect and correct. And then the, fa- the final one, sixth fruit of sinful anger, malice. This is plotting to do evil to someone. And you can see how all these go together. Uh, there, there's, it, it goes from the, the burning, you know, seething inside all the way to the, the words, the bitter words, the hurtful words, and plotting evil against them. And so, Paul is saying here in verse 31, let all of these be put away from you. Let all of these, all six of these be put away from you. All forms of and fruits of sinful anger. And what he does here is, is he, you know, we've got this whole string of imperatives or commands in, in this, in these five put-off, put-on pairs. And what he does, though, is he switches from the uh, present imperative to the aorist imperative here when he says, let it be put away from you or let them be put away. What he's doing is he's, it's, it's a sense of urgency. The aorist is, is a simple past tense. And so he's saying that let it be done. Okay, so your bitterness, and all, let it be done, done with. It's also in the passive voice. You know, active voice is like me doing something. Passive is something is being done to me. So he's, he's giving them a command, but he puts it in the passive voice because he's saying that, you know, you are responsible for putting off sin, but you can't do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, so think here, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation. You are required to do that. But don't forget that it's not your power because it's God who's at work in you, you see. So this is that idea, again, that we are dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what we're required to do. So then, we'll come to verse 32. <clears throat> Number two, replace them with the fruits of forgiveness. So we, we put off the fruits of of sinful anger, now replace them with the fruits of forgiveness. So verse 32, if you'd read with me. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So replace those six fruits of sinful anger with these three fruits of forgiveness. First one, kind. It describes that which is good, Pleasant or kind. And some examples from the New Testament. Christ's yoke is pleasant. Old wine has a good taste. God's kindness. It leads us to repent. It saves us. And, as Peter says, it's pleasant to the taste. If you've tasted of the kindness of the Lord. That's the idea behind it. And again, he goes back to the present imperative here. It indicates that we are to begin... Being kind, if we haven't already, and the present brings out the force of, and you keep doing that. Okay, that aorist imperative is that you stop with all these you know, bitterness and everything. But with the kindness, that needs to continue constantly. Okay, kind, tender-hearted, and so forth. <clears throat> and 
Jesus told us to be kind so that we will be like our Heavenly Father. Why? Because He is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And you may say, well, John, you don't know about this person in my life. Okay, are they ungrateful? Yeah. Or evil? Yeah. yeah. Well, God is kind to them, so you have to be. Because He's your Father. That's what Jesus is saying. And then He goes on, Jesus goes on to say there in Luke 6.35, when we are kind to the undeserving, it shows that we are sons of the Most High. And I know what goes through our minds when you think about, okay, I need to be kind to this person. And you think what? That they don't deserve it. Now, you're right. You're absolutely right. They don't deserve it. No one of you deserves me to be kind to you, and I don't deserve for you to be kind to me. Okay? That's not the point. The point is, I'm to be like God, you're to be like God, and we have to be kind to one another. So don't let yourself go down that path that they don't deserve it. Not the point. But, you know, there's a good thing in that. Because when you realize that they don't deserve it, and you do it anyway, that just reminds you that I'm being like my father. Because I don't deserve it, and he's been kind to me. See, that, and that's the whole idea that's going on here that's going to uh, kind of use the same uh, analogy again. It's going to bloom when we get to chapter 5, verse 1, this idea of imitation, imitating God. <clears throat> so that we'll be sons of the Most High. Okay, second one, tender-hearted. Originally, this referred to your inward parts, okay? Or less pleasant, your guts, okay? All the guts inside, okay? <clears throat> and and what and it, it became figuratively used for uh, the location of your feelings and your emotions. Now, that might sound weird to you, but think about when you get nervous, what do you say? I've got butterflies. Where? Here. Okay? That's where the butterflies are. You see, so the ancients, they felt the same thing. Or when we talk, okay, so we're coming up on, you know, February 14th, not too far away here, right? And we think about love. Where is love found in the person? In their heart. And, of course, we, we draw it real pretty and cute, right? doesn't look anything like the actual heart. But part the heart is just one of your innards. Okay, and we say that I love you with all of my innards, you know, and so <laughs> if if they had, you know, okay, so you know those little conversation hearts, okay, and uh, yeah, I blame you guys for that, so, that thought, but um, these little conversation hearts, okay, you know, that, you know, be mine and all that, okay, well, if they had those back in ancient times, it would say something like, I love you with all my guts, you know, so probably wouldn't sell very well. But that's the idea here. It it has tender-hearted originally meant the the insides. That's that's where we feel. Okay, and so it came. They understood that because when you have these deep feelings, like you're you're terribly anxious and you have the butterflies, or you're you deeply love and you feel it here. At least that's what we say, right? And and so. <clears throat> That is, it brings out this idea of being uh, compassionate. 
And and you can think about even the, the Hebrew word, remember, for compassion, it comes from the word for womb. Okay, because, you know, a pregnant mom has this these tender, compassionate feelings for her uh, baby, the baby she's carrying. Uh, that's all that the ancients understood that. Compassion, tender mercy, being tender hearted. And again, it imitates Jesus. Why? Because he had compassion for people in need. And, and, so, and there's a number of passages that show that, the compassion that he had for those who are in need. That is the kind of the, the tenderheartedness, the compassion that we ought to have toward others. And the third one, third fruit, forgiving. And literally, this word is to be gracious. But in a number of passages, including this one, it refers to this, the grace of forgiveness. And the Legacy Standard Bible, one of the newer translations, which is excellent, it's becoming uh, fast becoming my favorite, um, because there's no surprise it's built off of the NAS 1985, which has been my favorite. So <clears throat> they they translate this graciously forgive, picking up the full idea in that word and how it's used in the sense of of being gracious, yes, but in the realm of or in in forgiving, okay. Going back to what, what Kevin read for us earlier in Matthew 18, <clears throat> Jesus, there He called us to forgive one another how many times a day? 70 times 7, which is what? 490. Okay? You know, and, and we've all been there, right? It's like, ah, oh, I've had to forgive them, you know, seven times already today. Eight. Not, you know. You know, and Peter, he's like, you know, being thought he was being really, you know, big hearted, you know, seven times, Lord, you know, and Jesus just pushes it off the charts, basically saying you have to forgive him every time. OK, and what's going on with forgiveness? And, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in just a second. But what forgiveness does is it restores the relationship that's been damaged by sin. So we're, we're recognizing that, yes, a real sin has happened. The, the relationship has been damaged. The way to restore that relationship, and we as believers in Jesus Christ, and especially if we're talking about believer to believer, we should not think in terms of the relationship can never be restored. Now, is are there going to be consequences? That there might be. And, and is there ongoing pain? Maybe. But we should not ever say the relationship can't be restored because it can be restored by forgiveness. And that's what forgiveness does. It preserves the bond between us. So when it's damaged, forgiveness then brings it back together. Forgiveness enables fellowship to flourish. Forgiveness enables fellowship to flourish. Third, Looking again at more of verse 32, after he says, uh, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Then he adds this, Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So, become a forgiving person because God has forgiven you. 
We have to take that away from this. Become a forgiving person because God has forgiven you. And you, if you doubt that, just go back and read that parable in Matthew 18. You know, and that should shock you. And it's like, yeah, severe chastisement, severe discipline there. <clears throat> the, you know, lock him up in prison till he pays it all. The idea is there, God will chastise us until we have learned. If we refuse to repent, He will chastise us until we learn. You are to behave toward your brothers and sisters in Christ in the same manner that God has dealt with you. You see, and you can't say, well, He's God and I'm not. No, He wants us to be like Him. So the way that He has dealt with you, and again, that's the Matthew 18, right? The way He has dealt with you, you need to deal with others. And if He has forgiven you, you must forgive your brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we're talking primarily about uh, within the body, the one another, right? In Christ, God has forgiven you. If you have put your faith in Jesus, God has forgiven you. It's final. It can't be undone. And if you are in Christ, you must forgive one another. So, now, let's, let's think about, okay, how does biblical forgiveness work? A lot of people don't understand this. So we're going to talk about how does biblical forgiveness work? What do you do in this? Okay. Well, if we're being called to imitate God, and we are, because he says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, we must ask, well, then how has God forgiven us? And what I want to do is just quickly read through some of the, what I'm calling the Bible pictures of forgiveness. Okay, I'm going to just, and you'll, you'll recognize these. You'll re- probably remember most of them, if not all of them. Beautiful pictures of God's, in God's Word of how God forgives us. And that then becomes the model for us to forgive each other, okay? So, this is what the Bible tells us about how God, these pictures about God's forgiveness. God has blotted out your sins so that they're no longer legible. So like if, if somebody had them written, you know, on, a, on a, a tablet there, God would, you know, scrub them out, blot them out so that they can't be read anymore. So that when you stand before God and Satan says, Oh, I've got, I've got the list of, you know, whoever, your, your sins. Then Jesus will say, uh, Satan, look at that again. And, and he'll look and they're all blotted out. He won't be able to read them because they don't they don't stand in God's court anymore. They're already dealt with, right? So that first picture, beautiful. He blots out your sins so that they're no longer legible. He has removed your sin as far as the let's see that way, right? East is from the west. What does that mean? Those are those are you know at least logically thinking. Those are as far apart as you can get, right? Because they never meet, right? <clears throat> We're told that he will not retain his anger forever. He has tread your sins under his foot. So, kind of like the blotting them out, it's like he takes your sins and then and he just stomps them until they're pulverized and you can't recognize them anymore. And I love this one too. He has cast them all into the depths of the sea. You know, think about, we know... 
nowadays even more so how deep the deepest parts of the sea are. And I mean, you, you can't just go dive and go all the way down there. You'd die. You know, just a little ways down, you'd die without, you know, having, you know, protective uh, ship and everything or submarine. And <clears throat> it's so deep. I mean, it's so deep that they say that there are mountains down there and they don't stick up out of the water. That's how deep it is. And so, it, so he says he's taken our sins. And think about it. He's taken your sins if you have trusted in Jesus. And he, he's put them all together, you know, put cement shoes on them and thrown them into the sea, the deepest part of the sea. They're gone. They're never coming back, right? He has wiped them out, similar to the blotting out. And then he has proclaimed I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God, He still knows our sins. He can't forget anything. He will never bring them up against you if you have trusted in Christ. You're not going to get up to heaven and, you know, we we like to picture it. We stand at the pearly gates and stuff and, you know, and, and... God's not going to be there like, well, no, you remember you remember that time? That's not going to happen. God is not ever going to bring them against us. Now, we, our conscience sometimes, because our consciences are broken, and they sometimes will bring them up again. But God has promised He will never bring them up again against us. If we have trusted in Christ, He will not bring them up against us again. And, and if you're as a believer in Jesus Christ, you sin, you confess your sin. We're told He's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it's done. Okay, the slate has been wiped clean between us and God. The relationship is restored fully. And He will not bring that up again. So what this means is that we, when we forgive one another... We are supposed to be, if we're going to be like God, making three promises. So, someone comes to you and they say, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? And if you say, I forgive you, and you have to, okay? When you say, I forgive you, you're making three promises. I will not bring this sin up against you, the one I've forgiven, ever again. Two, I'm not going to talk to other people about it. Three, I'm not going to dwell on it myself. And that's probably the hardest one, right? But that's what we're doing. And that's what we better do. We're making those three promises. Because that's what all of those those Bible pictures I gave you, that's what they say about how God has forgiven us. He has dealt with them so decisively and He uses those beautiful pictures to drive that home in our minds. And we, we hold on to those precious promises, don't we? Oh, he's, he's cast into the depths of the sea as far as the east is from the west. So if God is in the east, my sins are in the west and never the two shall meet again in a sense. And I promise God says, I will never bring them up against you. That is how we must be toward each other. And so uh, the parallel passage to uh, Luke 18 or Matthew 18 is Luke 17. Jesus commands us there that he says, if your brother comes to you and says, I repent, you must Forgive him. Or go back to the parable in Matthew 18, where it ends in what? Severe chastisement. We have to forgive each other. 
when the other person says, I repent or I sinned against you, will you forgive me? What that does is it wipes the slate clean between us. It restores the relationship. That's the beauty of forgiveness. I mean, that's the beauty. We love being forgiven by God. We love the fact that, that He's wiped that slate clean with the blood of Christ. And we now know that God's never going to, He's not going to throw it back in our face. And our relationship with Him is restored permanently, forever. And nothing can stop that. Even though there might be a, a temporary you know, problem in the fellowship there, while I'm, I'm you know, rebelling against God and I'm not repenting, the relationship isn't severed. There's just a problem there. And it's restored in forgiveness. And so, you know, 1 John tells us that we confess our sins. He's faithful to forgive us. You don't have to beg Him for forgiveness. You confess your sin, He automatically forgives you. That's the way that works and cleanses you. We must be that way toward one another to automatically forgive you. I've, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And we must say, yes, I forgive you. And I tell couples and others in, fam, in counseling, if you can't bring yourself to mean it, then you say, okay, can we just real quick time out? I need to pray. Not, I need a few months to think about this. No, that's not okay. But you can say, I need to pray. May I go pray? And you go pray and you get your heart right before God. You read Matthew 18, that parable. And you say, God, okay, I'm ready to forgive them. And you run right back to them and say, yes, I forgive you. That's the most you can drag it out. Don't, don't go beyond that. That's not okay. <clears throat> it wipes the slate clean. It restores the relationship. And again, as I said earlier, forgiveness enables fellowship to flourish. So, in all of these five put-off, put-on pairs in Ephesians 4, 25-32, Paul calls you to be like God. And in that string of imperatives that he has in that throughout that whole uh, section, those commands that he gives us in that whole section... <clears throat> He's saying this, because God is truth, you are to speak the truth. Because God is angry about sin, you too must be angry about sin. And again, be angry without sin. Because God gives generously, you must work hard so you can give. Because God builds us up through His Word, you must build others up through your words. And because God is kind, compassionate, and forgiving, you too must be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And Paul is going to say in the very next verse, this whole idea of being like our Father. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And there's a very beautiful picture in that, which I'll make you wait till next time, okay? So that you'll be back. But it's about imitation. It's about becoming like our Father. And so let's walk away with this. Imitate your Father. Your Father in Heaven. Be like Him. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the cross reminds us of God's love. It reminds us that He has forgiven us. 
don't come to the table and as the elements are passed around and as you take yours and don't just think that, okay, a little piece of bread and a little bit of, you know, the cup and remember things about what it means. Remember, as you hold those in your hands, God has forgiven me. The, the, the bread and the cup remind me that Jesus died for me. That's what it means. And so the Lord's table should be deeply meaningful to all of us every Sunday that we do it. It shouldn't be rote and meaningless. It's, it's not a religious thing that we do. <clears throat> it reminds us of, his, of God's love. It reminds us of how He's forgiven us. It reminds us that Jesus paid our penalty for sin. And so Paul in Romans would say there, what? There is therefore no condemnation for whom? Those who are in Christ Jesus. And as he says here, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you are in Christ, God has forgiven you. And so these things should be deeply meaningful to us and they should transform us so that we too are forgiving toward others. So let's, as we come to the table, think about how God has forgiven us by having Jesus, His Son, pay for our sins.